Welcome to Wall Street Weekly, a show where your hosts, George and Patrick, cut through the financial jargon to keep you educated and informed about the markets that affect our lives. Enjoy the show. This is the highly informing, overperforming radio show on Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM. I'm joined, as always, to my left by the beautiful Patrick Scott. Thank you, George. But today is a highly anticipated episode because we're going to be talking about cryptocurrency. I don't know if you guys in our viewing audience or listening audience have heard about it, but me and Patrick didn't really know what it was all about. We're not experts on it. So we decided to bring in the man known as the Crypto King, Uh-oh. founder of the Hillsdale College Crypto Club, Mr. Ian Schlegel. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. So before we get started in, in talking about crypto, we do re- want to remind our audience that anything we say on this show is not financial advice and always talk to a legal or financial or any professional before um, making any transactions with that. But I think the best place to start off talking about cryptocurrency is I think we gotta gotta go back to the start where it all began. And I'm gonna leave that to Patrick because if you don't understand that, yeah. Well, I mean, as a history student, one of the things we we like to say if you want to get to know someone or something, you look at where they're from. So that's why we're going back to look at its history. So Bitcoin was started between 2008 and 2009 by Satoshi Nakamoto. More on him later. The Bitcoin network was created by Nakamoto in 2010 when he mined the first block of the chain, and that was called the Genesis block. So mining is the process of validating a block of code on the blockchain. It is like solving a super complex math problem. Is that is that right, Ian, a little bit? Uh, yeah, I'd say that's a pretty accurate representation. Um, in essence, what you're doing is um, you are creating a secure network by making the creation of a block extremely difficult um, to do so that the work you put in is pretty much equivalent to the value that you end up getting from it. And so it really disincentivizes people, keeps people from um, kind of trying to hack into the blockchain and, and changing what it looks like. Okay. So this is how it was explained to me, so I don't know if this is wrong, but like Visa and MasterCard, they have to use resources. They have to pay money to verify transactions that happen when you swipe your card or when you use the chip reader. Is that kind of what's happening with when you're mining, you're doing the same thing, or, or is it a different process? So... <sighs> In, in some sense, it's a similar process. Um, obviously, for, for Bitcoin, there are only a select few, uh, a specific community that's actually doing the mining. It's not everybody who's using the blockchain is doing the mining. Um, but those people who are mining are pretty much using uh, intensive amounts of electricity um, in order to create high hash rates, which are pretty much just randomized combinations of numbers that try and then guess what is the, they call the, the code of the block. And then once you actually guess that correctly, um, you then are granted access to create the next block on the blockchain um, and so that was the original kind of security system that was formed for cryptocurrency there are others that are kind of used now as well um, one that's pretty common is also uh, so so proof proof of work is what mining is and then uh, proof of stake is what ethereum uses so that's staking so that's another form of um, yeah kind of creating a secure blockchain network to simple it down, if you have to boil it down to its simplest form it's to secure the system or the transactions yes. that are taking place yeah, that's okay correct. Okay, so I have a question real quick. Is there like a limited amount of Bitcoin today? And then if it's continually being mined and created, is there technically an infinite possible amount of Bitcoin? So there is a limited amount of Bitcoin. uh, And that number, I believe, is 32 million. I should know that better. But um, 
and in essence, what it is is that in the current moment, there's actually a certain amount of Bitcoin that's still locked up. Um, and so that Bitcoin that is locked up um, is slowly given out to the miners. And every four years, they have what they call the halvening, which is pretty much uh, a point in time where the um, uh, amount of Bitcoin rewards you are given for solving a uh, blocks code um, is then dropped in half. And so I don't remember what it is right now. 6.25. Um, is it 6.2? Okay. Yeah. And so 6.25, I believe that happened in... 2020 and so there should be another happening in 24 i believe is right um and so pretty much that will slowly begin to uh decrease until they're getting only you know minuscule amounts of bitcoin um but obviously there's only an incentive to do that if the value of bitcoin is there and so um it's pretty much just a supply and demand dynamic where if there's less value in bitcoin there's going to be less people mining and it's going to become easier to mine blocks so it's 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 got a lot of internal mechanisms to create it so that it it um is a valuable process. So when you su successfully mine one Bitcoin, you're basically releasing it into the open. It's not going straight to your account, but instead you are getting at this point 6.25. Yeah. Bitcoin. So so the way that it works officially a little bit nitty gritty is that when you are granted access to create the next block, you then put in all the transactions that have happened in the last whatever it might be 15 minutes into that block. But then you're also granted access and the code allows you to also then put in a separate piece of code that puts in 6.25 Bitcoin into your personal account. Um, but if you try and put any other amount of Bitcoin into your account, it'll be an invalid block and it won't let you do it. Um, and so pretty much, yeah, it's just pretty much uh, you're, you're listing out all the transactions, but then you're also allowed to put one transaction into your own bank account. So it does go straight to you. Um, and so that's kind of the reward for creating that block. So you're processing like millions of transactions and then an additional transaction is created where it sends the Bitcoin to you. Yeah, that's correct. Gotcha. Okay. So chances of successfully mining a Bitcoin today are around 1 in, one in 27 million. And that's not just due to the difficulty in mining one, but also the amount of power and electricity needed to do it. Bitcoin uh, mining consumes over 100 terawatt hours of electricity every year, which is more electricity than what is used annually by most countries. So the computer hardware uh, also costs thousands for one person to be able to mine today. Bitcoin uh, began to be transacted between accounts in 2010. The first commercial transaction occurred the same year when a programmer bought two pizzas uh, with 10,000 Bitcoin. And I hope for his sake that those two pizzas were the best that he ever had because 10,000 Bitcoin today would be worth 300 million. So I don't think he would make the same trade today. No, probably not. So how did this run-up happen? How did it become so valuable? Yeah, it experienced a lot of growth in the years leading up to COVID. In 2017, it nearly hit a value of 20,000 US dollars for every Bitcoin. Then it settled for a while uh, in the lower thousands. Um, it took an initial hit in March of 2020 with COVID, and a lot of Bitcoin was sold, uh, likely due to a lack of investor confidence. But this led to many others uh, creating a Bitcoin wallet. Um, looking to capitalize on the lower price. Bitcoin quickly returned to its pre-COVID price and the jump in investment after the March 2020 fall set up tremendous growth in 2021. Around this time, bigger company names such as PayPal and Tesla, they're starting to allow uh, Bitcoin transactions and investing firms are also beginning to put money into Bitcoin as an investment. It continued to grow, um, though this growth constituted a myriad of price spikes from high to low. Um, it reached its all-time high in November 2021 at $68,000, and today it's $30,000. Which is interesting because only a couple months ago, wasn't it down to, what, like 15000 or 16000 yeah, yeah, sixteen, somewhere in that range. And then uh, I told you we'd get back to Satoshi Nakamoto. So 
this person or persons um, is the creator slash founder of Bitcoin. And no one seems to know who he or they really is. Um, after mining an analyst estimated 1 million Bitcoin, he handed the network alert key and control of the code repository <clears throat> to G Gary Anderson in 2010. And then Nakamoto disappeared. Satoshi Nakamoto, in fact, is a pseudonym and likely not his real name. Might not even be a single person. And there is some speculation that it is a, a, a group of people. And the most widely accepted answer right now is that it is uh, Dorian Nakamoto, a Japanese physicist who, when asked if he started Bitcoin, said, I am no longer involved in that and I cannot discuss it. It's been turned over to other people. They are in charge of it now. I do not have any connection. And Dorian's birth name, in fact, is Satoshi. Ian, what do you think about this? Do you have any sus um, suspicions? Do you think it's anyone else? Uh, yeah, I mean, people have claimed throughout time that you know they were Satoshi Nakamoto and and whatever. I think it's kind of a mystery. I know there there are some speculations that it was a group of people or maybe uh, you know one person who then was kind of ousted by the community. And so I think there is a pretty general consensus that they're not really active in the crypto community um, in the modern day. I do know there's speculation even about the name itself. The four parts of the name uh, come from four different Japanese uh, companies, um, and I don't remember their exact. I know it's like Motorola and uh, Samsung, and then a couple other companies that kind of mashed up. If you put those four names together, you'll get Satoshi Nakamoto. So mm -hmm. I don't know. And what do you think about people who say use it as a reason not to invest in Bitcoin, or kind of voice that as a concern that hey, we don't know this person who. If I'm not mistaken, don't they still have possession of like a million Bitcoin? And there's a concern that if they flooded the market with that, it could ruin, you know, some investors and, and increase the supply. Yeah, yeah, there is there is some concern um, by certain people that um, there is a, is a wallet still out there that you can see on the blockchain um, that people say was owned by Satoshi Nakamoto that has, uh, I don't know the exact number of Bitcoin, but maybe somewhere in like the... 1 million, 2 million range, um, which obviously, yeah, if you flooded the market, you could absolutely crash it. Um, and so I think it's a concern for certain people of, you know, whether or not there's good incentives involved. Um, and I think it's something to consider and at least be cautious of. Um, but there's also some maybe game theory uh, answers to suggest that it wouldn't really make sense for him to, to do that at the moment if, you know, if he really uh, has created this thing that keeps gaining in value, then why would he you know, pull it out now. Again, how yeah. much money can a person have? I also, I just looked it up, and so the four names that Satoshi Nakamoto could come from are Samsung, Toshibi, Nakamichi, and Motorola, which are four Japanese companies. So, I don't know. Well, Interesting uh, tidbit. <laughs> and then, for our audience, you keep talking about a wallet. I know people, when they talk about wallets, you know, sometimes it refers to a USB stick, or sometimes it refers to, you know, a download on the computer. And then I think some people maybe confuse it with what you're buying at a broker, let's say FTX or crypto.com, how would you distinguish those things? And if you could define what a wallet is, that would be great. Uh, yeah, so um, there are a couple different maybe forms of wallets. Um, obviously, if you have your crypto on a centralized exchange like Coinbase or up until recently FTX, um, a lot of people would consider that their wallet. In essence, that's not actually um, a real wallet in, in the sense of it being uh, a wallet used on the blockchain. Um, so a wallet in a, in a cryptography sense is pretty much like a string of numbers um, that is like a key. It's almost like a bank account where people can then you know send money to you and then you have a special key that you are the only one to then 
um, be able to send money out of your wallet by by using that key. Um, and so there are then two other types of, of real, what I would consider real wallets, and those are um, just the basic wallet that people hold themselves. Like I have um, a digital wallet on, on MetaMask, and so that's something that I have the keys to that. No one else has it, and I'm like the sole proprietor of that wallet. And then there are other wallets that are um, pretty much like split. So I know Coinbase at least has a type of wallet that pretty much you, it's a real wallet that you have keys and access to, but then Coinbase has access to it as well. So um, there are certain reasons why people would want to do that if you're a little bit more like risk averse and trying to hedge your bets. Um, but yeah, so there's kind of those three different types of what people would call maybe quote unquote wallets. But in essence, there's really just one type of wallet, which yeah, it's just a cryptog cryptography code. Um, so. And, and you said the wallets are visible on the blockchain. Do you want to explain how that visibility is maybe the best asset of Bitcoin, but at the same time, it does give a level of security? Um, so, yeah, in one sense, Bitcoin's completely anonymous. And in another sense, it's not anonymous at all. It's anonymous in the sense that um, when you look on the blockchain and you look at transactions that have happened, it'll tell you from what wallet it goes to and what wallet it you know went uh, or from what wallet it came, but it won't. Um, tell you the name of individuals and there's no way to really find that out unless you have that knowledge uh, already um, but then yeah th there's another sense where it's not anonymous at all and that's in the sense that you can see every transaction that happens and you can see you know um, where it's going where it's come from um, and and so if you already know who owns a wallet you can track all of their transactions so um, that is something that other cryptocurrencies have kind of changed but yeah in some sense it's a it's an asset um, to it in that it is a completely um, transparent currency um, or a completely transparent form of, of payment. Um, but then, yeah, there is also that anonymity side to it um, that I know some people are worried about with whatever it might be, illicit um, payments. But You mentioned currency a little, and then I saw you, you kind of back down from it a little. So that was actually one of my questions. Yeah, so yeah. it is called cryptocurrency, but I know a lot of people have argued that, you know, a real currency doesn't fluctuate that much in value going from basically worth nothing or pennies to $68,000 in a matter of 10 years or even within months, you know, losing half of its value. So where do you really peg cryptocurrency as maybe an investment or a currency or more of like a physical commodity? Like, how do you look at it? Yeah, um, that's a, a really great question because I don't think there's one right answer or one answer that we've kind of come to yet. Um, and I guess to start out with, I'd also say that depending on what crypto, you know, cryptocurrency, quote unquote, uh, as the conventional term is, uh, depending on which one you're talking about, I would really classify it in, in different areas. So, um, you know, for, for Bitcoin, for example, I'd say that the, the closest thing you could get to is considering it a commodity. Um, a lot of its value comes from the fact that it is a set supply. So you only have, you know, that set amount of millions of Bitcoin that are going to be there that's all there will ever be. And so because of that, it gives it kind of uh, a gold standard in the, in the sense that, you know, gold is valuable because it's extremely hard to mine and there's only so much of it there. And so if you own it, you know that given 100 years down the road, there might still be value in that as long as people still value gold. And so Bitcoin's kind of the same thing in that sense. So there's maybe a little more intricacy in that. But at the basic level, yeah, just Bitcoin kind of gets its value from uh, being a commodity similar to gold. Um, yeah, and that leads me to my next question. Me and Patrick, we've heard that old guy walk up to you and say, ah, crypto is worth nothing because they can just create it out of thin air. And to be fair, there have been some what they call pump and dump schemes 
where people create, I think there was Squid Coin after the Squid Games where they made just this digital token, made $8 million and ran away with the money. Um, how would you respond to someone who says cryptocurrency inherently has no value, Bitcoin has no value? Yeah, um, it's definitely a case-by-case basis, I would say. Um, so, I mean, just to start out with, even with what kind of you had mentioned before in that idea of a store of value of a currency, you know, economics would define a money as a, as a store of value, a medium of exchange, and a unit of account. And you have to have all three of those things in tangent. Um, and so for most cur- uh, cryptos, you wouldn't consider them a currency because they don't have that store of value as much. Um, and so, uh, but then there are, are some currencies that do, you know, the traditional stable coins, not the algorithm- algorithmic ones, but the traditional fully backed stable coins do have that store of value. And so they could be considered a currency. And then you've got Ethereum, which I really wouldn't consider a, a currency or a commodity, but more a technology, in some sense, a, a capital or a, or a capital good, um, in that it increases productivity and gives you the opportunity to um, you know, create smart contracts, which is a little bit maybe high level. Maybe we don't want to get into that as much, but um, provides use cases in that way. So it's definitely something you have to consider on a, use, uh, a case-by-case basis. But if I was presented in that situation where someone says, you know, all cryptocurrency is worthless, I guess I'd start by saying, you know, I was definitely there at one point in time as well when I first heard about, you know, Bitcoin going to 16,000. I was like, what's going on here? Um, but then I'd also probably just start by explaining some of the really simple use cases of it. So like I mentioned, you have stable coins, which, um, you know, for foreign trade can be really beneficial. You have, you know, the current system of wire transfers between banks, which, which can take, you know, up to five business days to actually happen. And there's high fees with that. Um, or you could turn your, you know, U.S. dollars into circle and then send that to someone in Europe and then they could turn it back into euros and it would take about 15 minutes and the fee would be extremely small. Um, and so something like that, just a very simple use case. And then there's other things. Um, one that I, is kind of my personal favorite is NFTs, um, but only because people just si- see the really um, stupid side of NFTs, I guess, with digital monkeys. But um, at its basic level, what NFTs do is bring property rights to the Internet which obviously from an economics perspective is um, you know, pretty outstanding. And so it really has the opportunity at least to revolutionize um, the you know, gaming industry, music industry, digital art industry, stuff like that. So Now, we've talked about how cryptocurrencies are great and, and they eliminate some of the things that are annoying for us. Uh, you mentioned the bank fees with wire transactions. And, you know, you can fly under the radar a little bit of the government, which we're not advocating for. But, you know, for some people, that's definitely a plus. What's stopping the U.S. government from taking this over and eventually this becoming a government-run currency? Or do you think there will be still a private crypto in the future? Like replacing the dollar almost? Yeah, for instance, the U.S. government wants to see Bitcoin fail so that it can implement its own U.S. dollar that's completely digital. Do you think there's still a place where Bitcoin could still survive in that sort of environment? Yeah, I think that's to be determined, um, really, with how the government is going to play its cards. So there has been a lot of chatter recently about CBDCs, central bank digital currencies, which is pretty much... um, using blockchain technology or um, kind of mutilated blockchain technology that's completely centralized to then create a digital currency that the government could control. And then obviously that kind of wrecks the idea of a set supply because then the government could just inflate and deflate the currency however they like, which um, is not ideal from my perspective. So I think it is kind of to be determined how uh, everything plays out um, based on uh, governments or other companies, um, obviously with the kind of minor banking crisis we went through a couple weeks ago and then the rally in cryptocurrencies that you saw there is um, still some amount of people who are questioning 
how significant or how valid the current banking system is. So I think there's definitely still hope in, in people uh, allowing cryptocurrency to thrive. I mean, that's that's what I would ask. I'm not even necessarily saying that cryptocurrency is in the long run the right answer, but I do think coming from an economics perspective that uh, you know the market process is very efficient and um, that profit and loss statement will tell entrepreneurs whether or not it is actually useful and they're creating, creating value. And I think ultimately that's going to be the most efficient form um, of, of money and banking that we can have. And so I hope there is a place for it in the future or at least that um, we can utilize it to then create a better banking system in, in some way. Um, but I think there definitely is also a possibility that the governments of the world could work against it because they want to have you know complete control over currency. So I think that's you know something that we just have to take one day at a time, I suppose. Now, I mean, we don't have that much time left on the show, but there was one thing that I wanted to get to. We didn't even get to the FTX stuff, so I think we'll talk about that next week. Now, immediately after the FTX crisis, me and you were talking about how FTX shouldn't really be used as an argument against cryptocurrency, the failure of that system. In fact, it could actually be used as an argument for cryptocurrency. Do you just maybe want to explain a little bit of the reasoning behind that? Yeah. Um, I think ultimately it kind of just comes down to uh, the, the simple bottom line that this was not a, a cryptocurrency issue, but it was just an issue with human nature. Um, I think the main problem we're seeing right now is just that there aren't good accounting standards in the cryptocurrency world. Um, and I think a lot of that has to do with fear of, you know, people like the big four um, or other big accounting firms who don't really want to get into crypto because they don't fully understand it. Um, and they don't want to be the next, you know, Arthur Anderson with Enron. Right. Um, and so I think that that's kind of the main problem that we're seeing. And so I think um, if, if you look at what happened with FTX, it wasn't actually about their business model or what they were doing, but it was just risky investments that were just terribly poor decisions that are almost unbelievable to uh, imagine them actually happening. Well, that's all I got. Patrick, do you got any uh, closing thoughts for Ian? I uh, don't. Thank you, though, for Ian, for, for joining us today. It was, it was great. Great conversation. Yeah, thank you guys so much for having me. Yeah, thanks to Ian Schlegel, like I said, the king of crypto. We didn't get to the FTX talk, so I think, Patrick, we're going to push that back to next week while we're on the thought of crypto. But yeah, thanks for tuning in to Wall Street Weekly on Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM. Thank <laughs> you.